Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Dr. Felicia Cornblue will join us to discuss A Woman's Life is a Human Life. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question a week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, as the U.S. reckons with a post-Roe v. Wade reality, what is at stake and what is the fight for modern reproductive rights going to be like? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Dr. Felicia Cornblue. Dr. Cornblue is a professor of history and of gender, sexuality, and women's studies and affiliated member in Jewish studies at the University of Vermont. She's the author of The Battle for Welfare Rights, Politics, and Poverty in Modern America, and co-author with Gwendolyn Mink of Ensuring Poverty, Welfare Reform in Feminist Perspective. She's a former board member of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England and current board vice president of the Planned Parenthood of Vermont Action Fund. She has penned the new book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to Reproductive Justice. Professor Cornblue, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is really a great book that you've put together here, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. I'm curious why you decided to put the book together here. I have to admit that I've felt at many times in the past six years when I was working on it, like I didn't really have a choice. And that that's been especially true in the last year, as almost everyone in the United States has seen this incredibly dramatic turnaround in the legal situation around reproductive rights. But for me, it even starts much earlier. So my mother died just six years ago in January of 2017. It was right after my mother had a stroke, which essentially obliterated her memory and made it impossible for me to ask her questions. It was right after that that I learned that she had played a critical formative role in the reproductive rights movement. In fact, she wrote the original draft of the law that liberalized abortion in New York State. And that law in New York wound up being a critical springboard into Roe versus Wade. So I had my mother as a starting point. And I also knew that our next door neighbor when I was a kid was an amazing woman doctor named Helen Rodriguez Trias, and that she was one of the key precursors to the contemporary movement for reproductive justice. So after I lost my mother, I started on this journey of doing a kind of homage to her by figuring out what really happened back in the day and how the movement to legalize abortion really worked. And then I also discovered the story of our neighbor, the work that she did to expand the movement even beyond abortion rights to constitute a bigger demand for reproductive justice, that it would allow everyone to make the choices they want to make about raising children. I'm wondering if you tell us a little bit more about your mother and her role in crafting these initial pre-row initiatives. Yeah, thanks for asking. So my mother was a labor lawyer by training, but she was also a volunteer member of the National Organization for Women, 
and now was at that time a very new organization and it was a women's civil rights organization that was its mission it wanted to do the founders of now wanted to do for women what the black civil rights movement had done for black americans and they wanted to really stand up against some of the discrimination that they saw in education and in employment and other areas directed at women as a class. So my mother was fiercely interested in that. She was a deep partisan of the National Organization for Women. And she joined their abortion committee in New York. And she was the only lawyer on the committee. So she wound up being the one who kind of carried their program, their agenda, which was to repeal all of the abortion laws, all of the restrictions that existed in New York State. And so my mother, as the lawyer, went through the legal code. And in those days, you had to do it with, <laughs> with books in a library, you know, page after page, to find every place where abortion was mentioned and to create statutory language, legislative language that would just strike it out wherever abortion appeared in the state code so that then the state simply wouldn't regulate it. And it would be up to women or pregnant people in consultation with their families and their doctors to do what they chose to do around their healthcare decisions. And it was an incredibly radical thing to do. The first draft that my mom wrote of this bill was in 1968 through the National Organization for Women. She shared it with two state legislators who introduced it into the New York State Legislature in January of 1969 it immediately had a galvanizing effect on the reproductive rights movement in the United States and became a focus of people's organizing and their demands. And it spurred comparable campaigns in other states. And the end of the New York story is that they won. They didn't, they didn't win as big as my mom wanted to win. You know, they didn't win everything, but they did win the most progressive or most liberal abortion law of any state in the United States. And that remained true until Roe versus Wade itself, that New York had the most liberal law. And I'll just add the last piece of that, which is the, the critical piece that that law also had no residency requirement. So people were able to come from any part of the country and go to New York and suddenly, for the first time, have a safe, legal, and relatively affordable abortion procedure. And people did come. They came from every single state. And they came from some foreign countries, too. And it, all of that helped create the momentum for Roe versus Wade. Really involved a lot of lobbying, a lot of activism from all different people to get to, to that point in New York. Yes, that's right. So my mother's group was only one part of it. My mother was a white, Jewish, middle-class professional woman. She had come from a working class and kind of struggling background. But by the time she was involved in in these efforts, she was already married. She already had three children. I was about two years old when she drafted this law. She worked very closely. The coalition worked very closely with feminists and even some non-feminists from all kinds of different backgrounds who couldn't have been more different from one another in terms of their own personal characteristics, you know, their, their national backgrounds, their ethnic backgrounds, their class backgrounds, and yet they shared this common goal. So, for example, my mother's neighbor, who was a Puerto Rican woman who had lived in both in New York and in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and then moved back and forth between the two. She was also a fierce partisan abortion rights. And she was in a group of women of color who were also deeply, deeply impassioned about this issue. There were clergy people who played an incredibly important role 
um, especially Protestant clergy, liberal Protestant clergy, and Jewish clergy, who were interested in changing the law. And the main way that they wanted to change the law was by referring people for safe abortions and basically breaking the law. So they were also part of this coalition. And then there was this new group of younger 1960s-style feminists who had learned from the movement against the war in Vietnam, and they had confrontational tactics, and they were willing to disrupt meetings and organize mass demonstrations. And they also were focused on changing this law and ultimately on changing the law at the national level. And it really was a group effort. It took everybody. Switching stories a bit here, tell us now about remarkable uh, pediatrician, Dr. Rodriguez-Trias. Helen Rodriguez-Trias was really an unsung heroine of the modern women's movement. So I've done as much writing about her as anyone ever has done, as any historian has ever done, but she really deserves a full-length biography of her own. She was someone who, kind of against the odds, wound up being trained as a physician and played a very important role when she was in San Juan, a pediatrician who was focused on neonatology, in other words, making sure that babies lived. And she was personally responsible for a dramatic reduction in infant mortality in the San Juan hospital that she worked in. And then she came to the U.S. mainland when her second marriage broke up, and she wound up being the director of pediatrics at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx neighborhood of New York City, which was one of the two or three most heavily Puerto Rican neighborhoods in New York. And Helen wound up getting that job because a militant Puerto Rican organization called the Young Lords Party, which is sort of like the Black Panther Party, but in the Puerto Rican community, the Young Lords had taken over part of the hospital and militantly demanded that it serve its community and that there be better health care and no cuts, and that the health care be provided under what they called community control, that it be responsive to the, the local neighborhood. One of the responses of the hospital administration, which was run by the city of New York, was to make sure that there was somebody who was culturally competent, as we would say today, somebody who understood the Puerto Rican community, who was the head of that pediatrics division. And Helen was the person they chose for that. So she was already a politicized person. She was already committed to not only to her profession as a doctor, but also to independence for the island of Puerto Rico from the United States. But when she came to Lincoln Hospital, she learned about this campaign for healthcare rights. And she learned to think about reproductive rights very much in that context of healthcare rights and healthcare for all people. And she had a great sensitivity about how racial background and class background can affect people's access to health care. So with that background, she became a co-founder of a brand new reproductive rights organization called the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse, or CESA. CESA brought that issue of sterilization abuse, which was something that was happening to Black women and Puerto Rican women and Mexican origin women and Native American women primarily. She brought that issue into the women's movement, the women's health movement, and into professional medicine. And she really confronted people in the women's movement who wanted to fight for abortion rights, but who, who weren't willing to fight against this other kind of reproductive abuse that was happening primarily to non-white women and poor women. That wound up being very, very important in the late 20th century. Women's movement ultimately laid the groundwork for 
what today people in the movement call reproductive justice, which is a demand that we have access to contraception and abortion, of course, but that we also make sure that everyone has access to what they need when they decide that they do want to have children, right? That people not be coerced by their doctors or by social workers or something into having a sterilization surgery when that's not really what they want. And that people have, you know, many of the other things that they need to make really full, free choices about having kids, like just having the economic ability to have a kid. That's what reproductive justice is. And that's what she ultimately laid the groundwork for. To your point, why do you think it is that, as opposed to reproductive rights, reproductive justice in the history of it, not so much uh, in terms of its coverage? It is a forgotten story. And I think organizations like the Planned Parenthood organization, which I am a very strong supporter of, and you know, I've been on boards where I live up in New England. But I think that those organizations have been so committed since the 70s to preserving Roe versus Wade and preserving the abortion rights that were enshrined by the Supreme Court in 1973, but then almost immediately thereafter started to be at risk, right? It's The groups have been so committed to that fight that I think they sometimes have lost focus and maybe have felt like they couldn't broaden their focus, that they simply would lose too much if they tried to focus on the bigger campaign or the bigger demand for reproductive justice. But I guess my argument would be that we're actually in a stronger position, the movement, those of us who care about people's reproductive freedom, that we're in a stronger position if we're talking about the full the full agenda, right? If we're saying, look, we believe in people's right to refrain from childbearing when that's their choice, and we absolutely believe in people's right to have kids when that's their choice. Like, I think that's a really robust and inspiring and politically defensible kind of program, political program. And that's the one that my neighbor, Helen Rodriguez Trias, really represented. Was there anything that surprised you about the history of the development of the movement or their own personal histories? Well, almost everything about this story has been surprising to me, to be perfectly honest. I didn't even really know about that New York had such an innovation in abortion law. Like, we never really talk about that. And interestingly, I think nowadays it seems it seems somewhat obvious now that Roe versus Wade has been repealed and we're in this world defined by the Dobbs opinion. But I think for many years, people didn't understand that abortion policy was primarily made in states and localities. It was not made at the national level. In the story I'm telling, made in the state legislatures, it was not made in the courts. First, it was in the legislatures. Eventually, it made it to the courts. But kind of constitutional law story, the federal court story, which I think people became very entranced by and got very into the details of in the final years of Roe versus Wade, that was a very late entrant into this whole history. And I think now it seems obvious if reproductive rights are going to be preserved or restored, they're going to be preserved and restored through initiatives that people take in state legislatures, around state constitutions, maybe even municipal battles that people have to fight about what the health regulations are going to be in your city. And we may even see it that it's, it's happening drugstore to drugstore, particular CVS or Walgreens is providing medication, abortion or not. It, this is really not a story about elite judges at the national level, except at the very, very end of the story. 
So I think that surprised me, the degree to which people could make change and did make change close to home, and the degree to which something like the movement in New York, which really started in a couple of neighborhoods in New York City. It happened in my neighborhood on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It happened in Harlem, where there were some legislators who were willing to take initiative on this issue because so many Harlem residents who are mostly Black and Puerto Rican were being harmed by illegal abortion, right? That that movement could then change a state law and that the state law could be so transformative that it could lead ultimately to a transformation in national law and in constitutional doctrine. That, to me, was kind of mind-blowing, I have to admit. And the same thing when we're looking at the anti-sterilization story, seemingly they had no resources. They had nothing but enemies, right, at every level, in terms of the city government, in terms of the national government, even in terms of other people in the reproductive rights movement who were kind of against their initiative. And yet somehow they won this string of successes, first in the hospital system, then at the level of the city of New York, where they passed a law controlling sterilization of youth, and then at the national level by going through the federal Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. They just won and won and won, seemingly against all odds. To me, that was also very, very surprising. There weren't that many of them. They, they were very committed, but they were a small group. And yet somehow they changed national law in this profound and lasting way. So I think it, it was surprising to me, and it also has a great, great deal to teach us today. We're now in that pre-row period, and going back to fighting these local battles, these state battles, what can we learn? Do you think we're in the same place that we were, where now we can have that same level of activism, this local communities and state communities that necessary? I think we're seeing a lot of the same initiative today that we saw in the 60s and 70s, and that I chronicle in A Woman's Life is a Human Life. Some of the circumstances have changed, certainly, now that we have medication abortion, and that's become the most popular form of abortion procedure. That's certainly different. And there's less sterilization abuse today than there was then, although it still happens sometimes to incarcerated women and some immigrant women in detention facilities and so on. So those things are different. But in terms of the political will, see that today, and it's incredibly inspiring and encouraging to me. You know, when we look at what happened in Kansas, for example, around that referendum campaign, even in my own home state of Vermont, where abortion rights and reproductive liberty amendment to our constitution passed with well over 70% of the electorate, you know, more popular than anything, more popular than any single politician in our state. So I think we do see similar levels of organizing and tenacity and local emphasis but I still think there's a lot to learn from the past. I mean, one thing I think that we learned from the past is that it was possible for people to change things in a very dramatic way. And I think maybe today it's hard to believe that. People are still so disappointed by what happened in the Dobbs opinion from the Supreme Court last June that I think it's, it's hard to believe that there could ever be a time when reproductive rights, much less reproductive justice, really be embraced at the national level. But I got to tell you, when I look at what happened in New York, for example, when they started in 1965, they never thought they were going to win. They certainly never thought they were going to get a judgment from the Supreme Court in their favor. Never, never, never. They thought they might have to pass a constitutional amendment to the U.S. Constitution in order to affirm abortion rights. You know, at the very least, they thought that they were going to have to dig in for a generation-long fight 
And heard people saying something similar after Dobbs, might be another 50 years. Like, maybe not. I think one thing we can learn from this history is, is that a deeply committed group of activists who really leave it all in the field, really give it everything they have, they can make enormous change in the short period of time. And we should never sell ourselves short to believe that that can't happen. And we may be surprised all the way down the line. I think we've already been surprised by the robust response, by the numbers in which young women are registering to vote and coming out to participate, by the degree to which this, is, this issue has already transformed American politics. I think there are some feminists who would have predicted it, but I think there are a whole lot of people who didn't predict it. And that's why you know, the November midterms looked so different than people expected. So I think there may be more surprises ahead. We are running slightly out of time. I'm just curious if you have any final words regarding your book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life. I really want this book to, to do two things. I really want it to teach everyone about Agenda for Reproductive Justice, which I think is so urgent now, more than it ever has been. Even as we're fighting for abortion rights, I think we have to remember to create a vision of the world we want not just this one legal right. And the second thing is that I really want to speak to younger people, to my students and the people in their generation, and to say to them, look, you've been given a raw deal. You've been dealt a bad hand. But working together, we can really change this thing just the way people did 50 years ago. We were just talking with Dr. Felicia Kornblue. Her new book, A Woman's Life is a Human Life, My Mother, Our Neighbor, and the Journey from Reproductive Rights to reproductive justice. Dr. Corin Blue, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grox Science Show. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.